Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are speaking with Kim Sorrell. Kim is an author and speaker who has an unbelievable story and is taking her tragedy and doing so much incredible good work into the world. And I cannot wait to share this episode with you. So Kim is an entrepreneur, director of a humanitarian organization, popular speaker, podcast guest, and the author of two books. Her first book, Cry Until You Laugh, is about her breast cancer journey and her husband's battle with pancreatic cancer after being diagnosed just four months apart from each other. It's very emotional, heartfelt, and she shares so much of this journey with us. I'm so grateful for her words, her message, and what she shares. Her second book is called Love Is. It chronicles her year-long quest to figure out the true meaning of love, a sometimes funny, sometimes scary, and always enlightening journey that led to the life-changing discoveries found mostly on the streets of Haiti. She does a ton of humanitarian work, and there's just so much that she shares in this episode. Here's the message. We are so much more alike than different, and we do not have to walk in somebody's exact same story in order to feel and experience what they are sharing with us. We connect by emotions, and this is a beautiful example of it. You're going to love this episode, and I encourage you to follow along in Kim's journey. She shares in here that she has a 14-day challenge on really diving into what love is. Welcome to the show today, Kim. I'm so thrilled to have this conversation with you. I have so been looking forward to this. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. I look at, there's so many parts to your story that I want to dive into, but I want to start with where you are today. Like you are a published author of two books now. I am right. Is that right? So tell me what are the name of the books? Uh, Cry Until You Laugh is my first book Mm -hmm. and uh, it chronicles. I started writing when I was diagnosed with cancer. And so it's about a year long journey of all of that. And then Love Is, is my most recent book. Beautiful, beautiful. I want to dive into those. But before we do that, I just want to your first book. How long ago were you diagnosed with breast cancer? September of 08. So it's been quite a while. Mm -hmm. Okay, so September of 08, you were diagnosed. What was that like in those first couple days of hearing about your diagnosis? Oh, it's crazy. It was crazy. You know, I expected If I ever was diagnosed with cancer, which I never expected to be, and I was young in my 40s with breast cancer, which is not common, and I was in complete denial, you know, I thought, why are they doing a biopsy? This is such a waste of time, a waste of money. And then on a Friday afternoon, 
I didn't get the lifetime moment of sitting across the doctors on a desk with my spouse and huddling together and the doctor delivering the news. Instead, I got this phone call and it was too late to make a phone call back to ask any questions. And it was just, hey, blah, blah, blah. You have breast cancer. We'll call you on Tuesday. No, 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 no. They left you a, a voice note? And- no, no. I actually talked to them on the phone, but that was the whole conversation. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, yes. so sit on that for like three days and we'll meet on Tuesday. Right. Well, yes. Like that's, that's part of the the issue too, right? Is as doctors in that space, it's like, they're very pragmatic, very factual, very like, this is what it is. But we forget sometimes there's a human on the other end going, but, but wait, like, what, what does that mean? I don't even understand. So that weekend, what was that like for you? Well, at the beginning, um, right after the phone call, the first thing I did was call my husband and I was crying so hard that he had no idea why I was calling, mm-hmm. but I finally got it out and it seemed like it was seconds before he got home from work and, and he did exactly the right thing. If anybody's ever wondering what it is you do in that moment, he did exactly the right thing. He just held me. He just held me and we cried together and that's all we did for a while. And that was good. And uh, then, you know, then it was like, okay, I got to deal with this. So the next day, Saturday morning, as soon as the bookstore opened, I was there Mm -hmm. and I thought, well, I'll get books on the subject. You know, certainly there's something out there, but everything was either very medical or very depressing. And I thought I, neither one of those is going to do me any good. I wanted a book that would tell me do I have choices I have to make? You know, what is going to happen? What does it feel like? You know, what, what am I going to go through emotionally? Like, what is this like? And there was nothing. And so I, I started writing. Uh, it was like very that. therapeutic, wow. but yes, I started writing. And at first as a way to update family and friends, but it became so much more than that. And I was sending out uh, my writing via email and uh before I knew it, 5,000 people were reading what I was writing each time. And I didn't write a regular pattern. I wrote when I had something to say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I talked about the, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the whatever. And, um, and, you know, I think it's funny because you have to be able to laugh. And, but it's real, you know, the, the stuff that I really went through. Yeah, that's a, I, and people do relate to people, right? Like they want to hear and learn and understand what that journey is like. And were you always a writer? I, I've always liked to write. I've never written a book before. I didn't plan on this becoming a book necessarily. That wasn't my goal. Um, it just kind of turned into one, but, uh, I've always enjoyed writing, but more articles and, um, shorter things than a book. Amazing. So as you started to write and put your thoughts down and, you know, really start to understand, you went into your doctor's appointment on Tuesday. And what did you find out then what your journey was going to look like before we get into the rest of your story? Yeah, it was a, a horrible appointment, actually. It was terrible. It was, um, uh, I think, five hours late. Uh, so my husband and I were waiting, waiting, waiting. We finally went and bought a deck of cars. We were walking around trying to do whatever. And then when we finally saw the doctor, she came in, blew into the office, couldn't have been with us more than three minutes and said, yeah, you have cancer. Go to the scheduler schedule. 
um, surgery and we'll talk later. Basically. I was like, wow, this is not the way it should be. Not at all. And so, yeah. So I I asked around for who was a good oncologist in town. Who's a good, there's a surgical oncologist or, you know, who and found the best doctor ever and switched to her. Because that's one thing with cancer is always get a second opinion, always, and always make sure you're comfortable with your doctor. You got to be with somebody that you trust and that you want to see because <laughs> you're going to see them a lot. And so uh, don't settle for whoever it is they assign you to. Make sure it's somebody that you want to be with. What a great message because like we're always our own best advocate. And we don't tend to go to even our family doctor unless there's an issue, right? So sometimes we're in a space that it's like, okay, well, that's my family doctor and this is what I have to do. When you're dealing with something like this and you're having, you want to be able to have conversations or ask questions to someone, you don't want to feel like you're putting them out by asking them a question. Right, right, right. Like you're interrupting their day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm glad that you did that. And you then started to advocate for yourself. You're writing, you're sharing your story. You're going through your, how fast did the surgery happen after that? Uh, it was the end of October. It was September 5 that I got the, the um, phone call and it was the end of October, which seemed like a really long wait. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it did. And then as you go through that process, when did the second part of your story start? Well, my husband started having stomach issues by the end of September, within a couple of weeks after my diagnosis. And he went to the doctor, his family doc, who's known him for years. And uh, the doctor told him, oh, it just take some Tums, some Rolaids. You're just upset because of what Kim's going through. Mm-hmm. And then things weren't getting better for him. So November, two months later, he went back again and again was told, I really think there's not an issue. Just take some Tums Rolates, but he did make him an appointment at a gastro specialist. And that appointment wasn't until January. And the day after his appointment, I was having a complete hysterectomy because of the kind of breast cancer that I had and a colonoscopy. And so I was doing the dreaded clean out. Could not leave my house, could not leave the bathroom. And so I couldn't go with him to his appointment and he came home. And after that two month long wait, which in some countries isn't long, but in our country it is a long time to see a specialist. Uh, he saw a PA who told him to take some Rolaids. And I was so upset because I wasn't able to go with him because I would have demanded something. I was the mouth of the couple and I would have said, run a test, do something, do something. So a week after. Uh, my surgery and they found bladder cancer when they did surgery. So it was a little bit more than just the hysterectomy. Oh, and you, they found bladder yes. cancer yeah. as well. Wow. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, I know. Crazy. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but so uh, I was still in pants with elastic waist, you know, watching Grey's Anatomy reruns a week out and woke up and my husband was already awake and just not feeling great. And I said, that's it go to the ER, you know, at least they'll run a test. They'll do something. They're not going to just send you away. Mm -hmm. And so he drove himself to the emergency room and he was a rule follower. And so it said no cell phones. And so he did not have a cell phone on. So I was going nuts thinking, buddy, give me a call. Let me know what's happening. 
And finally, I got a phone call and he said, uh, I guess they're going to keep me overnight. And I'm like, keep you overnight? Nobody stays overnight. They don't keep anybody overnight. And it's a Friday. Like, who's going to keep you overnight? And so I put on real people clothes and hopped in my car and drove like a bat out of hell in my bike in an induced state. And I was almost to the hospital. My phone rang again. And my husband said, I guess there's a spot on my liver. And I'm like, spot on your liver? What is that? And I just started sobbing. I just started bawling. And so blurry-eyed, I get to the hospital, somehow park my car, run in, holding all parts of my sore body. And he was told where he was. He was behind a curtain. And I whipped the curtain back. And he was just sitting on the edge of the bed like nothing was going on. And I'm sobbing. And he said, listen, I am not going to invite you out anymore if this is the way you're going to behave. <laughs> Sorry. And I said, listen, buddy, you are not allowed to be funny right now. No. No. Right. But uh, I didn't leave the hospital again, you know, until, until he did and ended up getting checked back in. I mean, it was all crazy, but it took a few days to get a diagnosis. But then we got a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer for him. Which unfortunately is like one of the cancers that you don't want to receive the diagnosis for, because at this point, but I can't even imagine, you know, being told Tums, Rolades, your stomach's just upset. Your Kim's going through a lot. This is what you're feeling to having to take that news in. And yeah, that had to be heavy and hard. Uh, it was, it was, and I was doing my best to live in denial. Yeah. So when they came in the next day and they gave us blood test results and the cancer markers were out of control, the highest the doctor had ever seen, he said, my response was, well, then your lab screwed up. Then you need to run them again, because if you've never seen them this high, then, you know, maybe something's wrong and it's not true. And it's like the lab didn't screw up. How do you know? Your lab never makes a mistake. Come on. And so, you know, I was doing my best to deny it until I, I couldn't anymore. Wow. I thank you for sharing all that with us. Honestly, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that kind of, um, the amount of emotions to take in during that time. And I thank you for sharing that because I know people listening will be able to feel that and know like how, how challenging that time must've been. And I'm sure it was a blur and I'm sure it was, you know, not an easy time. Your husband, how long, what did the next few weeks look like? Well, the next few weeks were great, actually. Um, we didn't have that much time, just six weeks. Mm-hmm. But we had a really great six weeks together, watching Cash Cab and playing gin rummy and, you know, whatever, yeah. hanging out. And there'd be times that I would just start crying. And yeah. he would just hold me and say, don't cry for me. Yeah, you're you're the one staying here. I know where I'm going. You know, don't cry for me. And uh, for him to have to comfort me when I felt like I should be the one comforting him, you know, was an interesting thing to do. But um, we just prayed. You know, I believe in God. I believe in heaven. I believe that's where He is. And and we just prayed from the very beginning for a healing. You know, like a miraculous healing, like the deaf and the blind, or the ultimate healing of heaven, but that he not suffer. Yeah. Because pancreatic cancer is supposed to be the the most painful cancer. 
Mm-hmm. And we had great hospice care. We were told a year. We were told he'd probably live a year. And so six weeks was awfully fast and unexpected. And so we had great hospice care. His pain was well managed. And and then there was a Sunday morning that he uh, woke up in pain. And I called the hospice nurse right away. She was there in seconds, it felt like, and gave him more morphine. and um, And he was sitting on the edge of the bed and I was holding him from behind because I didn't want him to fall off. And he was so uncomfortable laying down because his stomach hurt so bad. And she was in our bedroom with us and she was on the phone um, calling for a hospital bed and a commode. And I I said to her, do I call my kids? What do do I do? She Mm -hmm. said, no, no, no. You've got lots of time. You've got lots of time. I said, are you sure? Because I've got a son. One of my sons was in the Navy far away at the time. Another in the Dominican Republic. Like I needed to know, do I call them home? And he's, she's like, no, no, I promise you, you've got lots of time. You've got lots of time. But holding him from behind, like I was, and him just in such agony, I just felt every bit of it and could feel how absolutely miserable, just so miserable that he was, that I just, I whispered in his ear and I said, baby, just go. And he never took another breath. That was it. Wow. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Like that is just, I think that's a piece of it. Sometimes we hear this. It's like they need permission to go. Like they need need permission to go. Mm -hmm. And it was so merciful. I mean, really, because you, I I think everybody's probably seen, experienced somebody in their life that just kind of lingers, right? We are in that space right now. And it's, uh, it's, I, I cannot quite understand what the, the lingering is. And we often hear sometimes that they're holding on for somebody else or somebody else. I don't know. It, it actually doesn't make any medical sense, but the quality of life that's happening right now is not something this person would ever wish for, but they're in a state that they're not aware of it. And I, I watch it and it's like, this is just, it's unreal to watch. And it's so hard to understand because we were told a year ago, she would be gone. And it was, it was going to be, and it's like, no, we're almost coming up to a year now and it it doesn't make sense. So it it really doesn't always make sense. Does it? That's yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't. And, and it's, it's hard to watch and Mm -hmm. you wonder, because I I've also heard that hearing is the last thing that goes. The last. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, that, you know, people might hear you and you, you not even know it. So, oh. uh, yeah, I have a friend who, whose daughter is a nurse and she would stay with COVID patients that were all alone, um, dying, you know, knowing that they were pulling the, the plug basically. And she would stay with them and talk to them just so they wouldn't be alone when they died because, because who knows really what's going through anybody's mind or, you know, what kind of transition is happening. And so. Anyway, yeah, that's uh, the the hospice. I can say firsthand from what I've seen, and I have a friend who is a doctor who works volunteer in hospice because she's come through it in her own family, and they're incredible people. They really are incredible people for you know for the work that they do. So your kids at this time were not at home, right? And had to make some phone calls and and deal with that with your kids. So that I mean, just all while you're recovering and you're going through this, 
you know, surprise, unexpected, really, that wasn't in the plan with your husband and then having to navigate with your kids. I'm sure that period of time, like that first year, I, what was that like for you? Or is that a blur? Well, you know, I felt like I needed to be strong for my kids. Yep. And I think any mom would. And um, my kids were so supportive and so great, but they just lost their dad. Yeah. And, you know, they were already in a different place because, because of what I was going through. And I kind of had put my stuff on hold sort of. So I still had stuff to deal with medically after my husband passed away. And so some of my focus had to go there instead of just on, on grieving. And so it was a, a, a unique time. I would say, and um, I just uh, wasn't sure what life was going to bring. You know, I thought I had my life laid out. I thought we would be in our 90s, you know, die on the same day, right? And we were in love. We had a great marriage and we would be in rockers sipping lemonade, you know, because that's all we could do. Apparently when we were 95, that was in my head and smiling at each other because I guess that's what people do. And, uh, And all of a sudden that was gone you know, the dream for that, that life was gone. And to think of, of now to be alone when that was not the plan and what does it look like? And even dealing with doctors alone compared to when my husband was there by my side and just dealing with everything alone with, with adult kids, there's still stuff to deal with. Right. I mean, you don't stop becoming a mom or you don't stop being a mom because they are 18 or something or 25 or 40. I mean, you're still a mom. And so it was trying to figure out this whole new life. And I'll tell you, um, when I was ready to go back to work, when I was physically ready to go back to work, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was an entrepreneur. I had businesses, but I had people running the businesses. And so I could go back, but didn't have to go back. I was running a nonprofit and resigned from that position when I was diagnosed. Wasn't sure if I was going to do that. And I decided to take it slow and figure out my life. And so I took a job as part-time bookkeeper of a nonprofit that my father and I had started 10 years before. And it was on January 1st, 2010. And 12 days later, there was an earthquake in Haiti that killed 200,000 people. So I went from part-time bookkeeper to seven days a week, 24 hours a day, full-on relief. And within a couple of weeks, I was in Haiti. And I really believe that service is undersold. Like going and serving was the best thing I could have done to heal my grief at that time and to deal with my grief at that time. I I think service, people need to understand what it can do for you at a time like that. If you're grieving um, the loss of someone. And uh, so that that's what I did. and that helped me a lot. Thank you for sharing that, that piece on, um, I think there's always such a benefit for serving and giving back to others. But I think when you're in a space where you have had such trauma happen, that it's, it's normal for it to all be about you and healing, right? Like it's very, very normal. And then all of a sudden something that can shift that is to how can I help someone else out and it can shift outside of ourselves, right? Sometimes we really have to get outside of ourselves 
And that sounds, it's not meant to sound cold because it's normal as we're healing. We are in our own grief of what's happening. And then when we can serve and help somebody else out, it really does shift our energy and start to recognize that we, I can do some good in the world. I can help somebody else out. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It, it does. And you know, um, people all deal with grief differently. Yep. Yep. And, and however you deal with grief, you deal with grief. But I think there are times that people need permission to laugh again. People need permission to smile again. It's easy to sometimes think that you're dishonoring the person that you lost if you are happy again, because you should be sad because they're gone. But I think the opposite is really true, that you're honoring them by living again. You're honoring them by laughing and living and giving and 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 doing your part in the world. And instead of staying stuck in that spot. Mm-hmm. That's, that's beautiful. Um, honoring them by laughing and living again. And what's the name of your first book again? Cry until you laugh. Yeah. Yeah. So is that where, tell us about that process of when did the book come and that process of cry until you laugh, um, cry, yeah, cry until you laugh. What was that process like and how long after your husband passed did your book come? Well, I uh, finished, I, I wrote for a little over a year. I think the last entry in my book is actually tomorrow I leave for Haiti. And so I was writing during that whole time of, of dealing. And, uh, and, and then I had people encourage me um, to make it a book. And one friend in particular who was in the printing business said, this has got to be a book, just make it a book. And so she helped me. She walked me through the process and and helped me turn it into a book. And so that was, that's what happened. And um, so that was uh, probably a year after uh, I stopped writing um, is, is when that happened. Wow. And what did it feel like to launch that, launch your story out into the world? It felt great. It felt really good. It was so healing to write. You know, it was such great therapy to get it out of me and onto paper, onto the computer. So that part of it, if, if that's all it ever was and nobody ever read it, I was fine with that. And then for it to become a book and, uh, have it open for even more people to read. Um, it's great if it can help one person. It's wonderful. Uh, the feedback I received was great and encouraging and, and people are still buying it and, and reading it and passing it on. And so, uh, it's, um, it feels good. I, I, you know, anytime you can take your tragedy and help somebody else, that's, that's when you're living. That's when you're, you're really doing what you're supposed to be doing here. You know, we go through things and sometimes we go through them and we keep them to ourselves. Yep. And, and sometimes you feel like you need to, but there's not anybody who there's, there's nobody that's gone through something that somebody else has not gone through it or is going through it. And the more we can support each other, the more we can be there for each other. You know, like I, I can relate to women who have lost their husbands better than somebody who has never lost their husband. Mm-hmm. I can relate to women going through breast cancer better than someone who's never gone through breast cancer. 
you know, we can sympathize, we can empathize, we can, we can say, we think we know what you're feeling, but you don't know what somebody's feeling until you, until you go through it yourself. And even then everybody's experience is a little different, mm-hmm. but to be able to, like, it, it was wonderful for me, um, sad, but I had a friend who lost her husband around the same time I did. And so, and then she got a group of women together that we were all around the same age and um, it all lost our husbands about the same time. And so I met these women and we went out to dinner once a month and it was great because we all had things we were going through that were similar that our friends weren't going through that nobody else was going through. And uh, so to take those bumps, those hard life lessons and use them for good, you know, what, what better way to, get through things yourself and what better way to serve the world. Exactly. That is so beautiful. As you do that, um, did you notice, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure I know the answer, but I'm sharing this for the listeners. Um, one of the things that people are so afraid to share up, to show up, share their story and be real is because of the people who are in their life right then. And they think, okay, but what are they going to think? And so many times I say, but you're now opening yourself up to meet people from all over the world that literally understand you in ways that maybe your current friends don't. There's nothing wrong with that. But you now all of a sudden recognize that, wait, I'm not alone. And it opens up the doors for so many people. Did you find that you create, you just shared part of that, but that through your process, you were able to connect with brand new people? Oh, yes. So many. So many people. Absolutely. And, uh, which is so great. And I think you gotta not care what people in your current, currently in your life think you you gotta not care. You gotta live who you are, you know, be true to yourself, be true to yourself and, and realize that, that your journey is not somebody else's journey and they're not going to understand. Not everybody's going to understand why you do the things you do, but you do them because you're supposed to. Exactly. And they might not understand, not because they're, um, not because there's something wrong with them or they're not capable of it. It, they might not understand because they, they just don't like maybe like it's that lens, right? Like what lens do you put on to be able to see and understand and hold space for someone else? We, when we went through our really difficult time, that was, that, that was really hard for family. They were not able. And there was a lot of advice that was floating around and most of it was critical. I'm not going to lie. And I remember at one point I was like, I had to create almost a standard. It sounds so strange, but that if you're not willing to like come walk in my shoes and live my life, I'm not asking for your advice. Like you can, it's, it's easy to stand outside on the road and give me some advice, but you don't walk in, live in my shoes day to day. If you're not willing to do that, then I don't want it. Like I actually don't want it. Right. 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 Yeah. You got to set up those boundaries. Yeah. And, and, um, which can be difficult and, you know, like, um, and you lose friends, you know, I don't know if you lost any friends over it or yes, yes. Sorry. Like I did most of them. And that was something we didn't see coming. Um, a big blessing in disguise, but it was, it was, and I think it's okay. Right. We do the, it's the seasons, reasons, and lifetimes. People always come into our life for like a season, a reason, or a lifetime. And the people who come into your life for a lifetime, they're small. It's small. And that's, that's, that's a beautiful thing too. Yeah. And you find out who, who those people are at a time like that. 
And, uh, you know, the last thing you want to do is be judged for how you handle a situation. Yeah. And, and nobody should judge, you know, that that's part of love is, is if you truly love people, you don't judge them. There's no room for that. There's no room for judgment or condemnation, or they should be doing or trying to fix people. There's no room for that. So you find out where the real love is in, in those moments. Oh, and speaking of where the real love is, as I'm looking at your bookshelf right now, I can see what is the name of your second book? Love is. Yeah. <laughs> it just was perfect. As soon as you said that, I was like, I can see it right there. Best bookshelf ever, seriously, as I'm looking at this right now in the video. Um, what inspired your second book? Well, losing my husband made me question love, made me question the real meaning of love. You know, it seems to be this mystery, right? You know, there's so many love songs and movies. There's you know, Ed Sheeran and Nicholas Sparks and whoever trying to tell us what love is or trying to figure out what love is. And everybody wants the love that's in the notebook or, or whatever. And, uh, but love is so much more than just a romance. And it's so much more than between, um, husband and wife or partners. It's, uh, it's so much more than that. I mean, it's love for everybody, everybody. And so, but what is love really, you know, and I wanted to make sure that going into this next phase of life, this brand new chapter of life that I was doing it right. And so I decided I would dedicate a year to figuring out the true meaning of love. And so I uh, used a 2000 year old poem. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. We hear it a lot of weddings. Our eyes kind of glaze over because we hear it so much sometimes. But I thought, well, I'll take one word a month and figure out, well, what is love that is patient? What is love that is kind? What does that mean? And most of the time I was working on it, I was in Haiti. And uh, the things that I found out about love blew my mind, changed my life, rocked my world. And um, I think would anybody's knowing the reality of love. Mm, Okay. So we definitely want to get into this. How long were you in Haiti for? Well, uh, for several years, I was in Haiti for at least part of every month. Okay. Okay. So you were there. And I know one of the things you mentioned is, is that so many things that you learned about love, you learned while you were there on the streets of Haiti. Can you share some of that with us and what that, what that time was like? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Haiti's a tough place. It's the toughest place I work. And I, I work in some, some tough countries and, uh, it is the, the toughest place to work and the poverty is thick and, um, the world has hurt Haiti. You know, we, lots of outside influences have done a really good job of, of hurting the country. It's, a, it's this beautiful, wonderful people living in horrible conditions, horrible, desperate conditions, but incredible people. And so, uh, it was an interesting place to do this uh, study, you know, to really try to figure it out. So I, I started the first month completely optimistic. I'm going to figure this out. You know, this is going to be easy. You know, love is patient. Oh my gosh. I know what patience is. Everyone knows what patience is, you know, you're not losing your mind because your son can't find his shoes and it's time to leave for school, you know, whatever. And, uh, and so I, I just started the month by writing what I thought. I was going to find out what I thought love is patient is and then looked for it everywhere. You know, love is patient, love is patient. I just had it on my mind the whole time and tried to figure out, try to figure it out. And every single month 
it took me until the end of the month that something big would happen that I'd go, ah, now I get it. Now I get it. And every single word was different than what I thought it was. Every single word, like love is patient. You know, I I thought it would be simple, like I said, but I figured out that patient and love that is patient are two different things. Love that is patient. I just believe you're supposed to love everybody. Just love everybody. You don't have to like everybody, Mm -hmm. but you can love everybody. So love everybody. So when you do, you recognize that this moment is the most important moment of your life. This moment right now. What's in the past is in the past and what's in the future is yet to come. This is the moment. So if you love the person you're with, which you should, then you give yourself fully and completely to this moment. And I'll tell you, this is something I had to practice and practice and practice. It did not come natural to me in my type A personality with my type A family, always competitive, always doing, doing, doing. It would... I thought I was this grand multitasker that could be in conversation while thinking about a meeting I had later, who had to get to soccer practice, what I had to get from the grocery store on the way home and be fully engaged at the same time and hearing everything somebody has to say. And I'm not that person. I don't know if that person exists. I don't think it does. I don't think it does. Yeah, I think we think it does, but it doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't. And so when, when I learned and practiced and learned to stop and truly listen, my world changed because I heard things that I never would have heard. Instead of making assumptions about what I think someone's going to say, or instead of having my rebuttal ready, because I know what they're going to say based on some label I put on them, which love has no label. So, but based on what I think, you know, is going to come out of their mouth, I actually was hearing the words. And everything changes when you really listen. You find out things that are truths that you didn't know were there. Mm -hmm. And one of the greatest things you find out is that we have a whole lot more in common than not. Isn't that the truth? Mm -hmm. Isn't that, that that is so true. I, I think that is a fact that continually blows me away is how we are so much more alike than different. We think that we're, you know, we're all different and yes, we, we have differences, but I do believe as humans, we have so much more alike than different. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Wow. So each month you did a different part of that of that love is patient, love is kind. And so each month you did a different word and that was a focus. Right. Right. But then of course I carried along the month before. So Mm -hmm. as I was working on love that is kind, I was working on the, you know, now knowing the truth about what love that is patient is. I was, I was working on that in myself as I was looking for love that is kind and, and so on. And I quickly found out that there's actually 14 is an essence of love in, in that poem. And so it took me a little longer than a year, but, uh, but I got there and, um, there are so many things that, that are commonly thought of about love that are not love things done and said in the name of love that are not love and myths that we, uh, tell our kids because it's what we were told that, Mm -hmm. that have nothing to do with love that are not love at all. Do you have one you could share with us? Sure. You know, I think one of the most common things is, is, uh, you'll hear love is a two way street. 
you know, that, that, or that love has a number to it. You know, it's 50, 50, it's a hundred, a hundred, right. But it's not true. Love, love is a one-way street. You know, if, if I gave you money and you gave me a pair of jeans, that's a transaction. Mm -hmm. So if I give you love to get love, that's a transaction. Love is not a transaction. Mm -hmm. You give love, period. You give love, period. If you're giving love to get love, you're setting yourself up for heartache and disappointment and resentment. You're setting yourself up for not a happy life. If you give love just to give love because that's what love does, then that is such a freer, happier way to live. You know, we we think we have control over people. Like if we give them love, of course, they'll give us love back. Well, love has a special way of, of that happening, but not always. There's there's no guarantee. And and but we think we somehow have some control over it, over the love that comes back to us. We have none. You know, you have a baby, you bring that baby home from the hospital and you have total control. You decide when the baby eats, you decide when the baby bathes, you decide when the baby goes down for a nap. But then six, seven, eight months later, all your Tupperware is all over the kitchen floor and pots and pans are banging. And you realize that you have lost all control. And I guarantee you never get it back again. Never. You will never get it back again. We control nobody but ourselves. Mm-hmm. We control nobody but ourselves. So love, there's nothing, nothing about love that has anything to do with control. Nothing nothing or, or being transactional in any way. So you give love, period. You give love. That is so beautiful. And I, I just heard recently, I think it was even last week on a podcast and they were talking about love and they said it's a 50, 50 and the, I can't, I can't remember. I listened to a lot of podcasts and they said, no, it's not. It's a hundred hundred because they said, you can't, if, if you, in order for me to even have a conversation with you, I need to listen to what you're saying. And that's listen 100% to what you're saying, not 50% and then make up what I think I'm going to ask next. And that's why sometimes people will say, can you give me the list of all the questions and the conversation that we'll have? And I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> well, we don't think we can come on the show unless you can give it to us. I'm like, then you're not my person because that's not how I want to have a dialogue conversation. And I love that you said that because it's a hundred hundred, right? Like we're, we're all in this, this space for some reason. I don't know where this started from, came from. I have no idea, but for women, we believe that multitasking is like a badge of honor and we like, I can do it all. Well, I, I can tell you right now, I cannot, I, (laughs) for a lot of years, I thought I could, but I cannot actually. (laughs) So it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing to learn. But when we do multitask, we're not giving our full attention to the person that's there. And subconsciously, we're then saying what you say doesn't matter. And we're, that's the message that we're giving. Right. And, and, and that I'm more important. Yeah. Because what I'm doing is more important than, than what you are. Wow. And and that's not true. No. No, no, nobody's more important than anybody else. Wow. That is just that I, I cannot wait um, to dive into that. And I will definitely share all of that in the show notes. What is up for you now? What are you doing now that lights you up and what is coming next for you? Oh my goodness. Um, life is wonderful. I, uh, I have a great life. I just got a puppy. <laughs> I've seen him come back through the street. I know. Yeah. So you've seen him. Yes. Arlo. Yes. He's so cute. 
But um, anyway, I uh, I'm writing a couple books. I'm writing a book on grief, actually, with a a friend of mine who's a who's become a friend of mine who's a medium. So I think it'll be a really cool book, and I'm I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm writing Love Is for Kids. I think the sooner you can know the truth about love and what love really is, the the happier life you're going to have, the better, more fulfilling life you're going to have. And uh, I'm doing a lot of speaking and um, I'm passionate, very passionate about the things I learned about love and I'm excited to get it out there. My book is selling, which is great. It's not a unicorns and rainbows kind of a love book. It is the truth about what happened in Haiti, this, the real stories that, you know, I was chased by a motorcycle gang. I got lost on a mile high mountain with a medical student. I slept outside with tarantulas and snakes. And so, uh, it's, it's the real nitty gritty stuff of what happened, uh, that brought me to the realizations that I came to. And so I'm just real passionate about sharing it. And I believe that love, it is love that the world needs now and that will change the world. Mm, and I love everything you just said, and especially this piece on like love is for kids. I think that um we see a lot in the online space right now about healing, right? And generational trauma and all these pieces for adults. But really what it comes down to, I believe like if we don't take responsibility for ourselves, our own healing, our own journey, then we're not being the best that we can for kids for not to control, not to fix but we have to give them a chance by being our best version, right? How many times have we parented kids and we hear something and it's like, oh, that's from my mother. I can hear it. Like I'm saying something that's not mine. Like what am I doing? So true. That is so true. Yeah. You know, I think back even when my kids were small and, uh, you know, you, you teach what you know. Right. So things that I taught my kids about love, you know, now I know I, I would do things differently, but, uh, you know, I'd be cooking at the end of the day, you know, over the stove and, and, um, one of my kids, like Luke was notorious for this. My, one of my sons, Luke, he would come and poke me on the arm. Like I think I had a permanent bruise for years, you know, right on my arm where he'd poke, 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 mom, 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 mom. And I didn't have time, you know, I'm, I'm stirring the vegetables, you know, or whatever it was I was doing. And I now realize that if I would have just stopped and turned away, turn the stove off if I need to, whatever, but turn away from the stove mm-hmm. and look my son in the eye and say, what would you like, Luke? What do you need? He probably would have said, look, my truck is red and ran away, right? <laughs> You know, he he was three years old. He's not looking for a deep conversation, but he had something he had to say right then. And we miss those moments because we're busy doing whatever instead of connecting with people, which is so much more important than the vegetables. Isn't it? Isn't it? And it's, and it's, I mean, I hate to be cliche, but it does go by way faster than you think. Like it, we don't think it is, but it does go by so much faster than you think. You know, I always think that the days can seem so long, but the years can seem so short. Yes, 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 they do. Yes, they do. I completely relate and understand. 
Wow. This is this such a beautiful conversation. And I am honestly so grateful for the connection and for the work that you're doing in the world. And you've taken like your story and your difficult path and you're doing so much good with it. And I know that it's only going to continue to support more people because when we are dealing with difficult times, when we're dealing with grief, a lot of times it's easier for us to just retreat and to pull back and to, you know, hide and not allow ourselves to be seen. So I think you're just giving more and more people permission to show up and be seen. Well, same, same with you, which I appreciate so much about you. Ah, thank you. I look at us receiving and giving. I love it. It's very, <laughs> you know what? It's, we can make changes. We can make big changes by, by opening up doors. One of the things that when I first started sharing our story is, I thought that I would only be connecting with people who had walked in my story. And that's not even close to the truth. I don't know if you found that as well, but that, that I wasn't expecting that at all because as humans, um, for anybody who's listening, we honestly, we don't connect by the details of the story. We connect by emotions and we connect by experiences. And so some of the people that I get to work with, walk with that are in my life now, um, they don't have any story related to mine, but they recognize the emotions and feelings and things that I can share. And that's the connection that allows us to, you know, see each other. That's so true. That's so true. I mean, everybody has a story. We, we all have a story. Mm-hmm. And, and quite often the emotions of stories do intertwine. Mm-hmm. And so it, everything becomes relatable. When, when you have feelings, which we all do, we all do, which we all do. So see, as you see here, like this is a beautiful thing and that there is a connection there. And I just thank you so much for everything that you've shared. I'll make sure that everything is in the show notes. You do have a 14 day love challenge. I see on your website. Tell us a little bit about that before we go into one more question. Sure. Yeah. So it's uh, completely free. Um, on my website, 14 day love challenge. And it's just a different aspect about love every day and just a little thing to read and then really think about that aspect of love each day. So it's simple to do, but a little thought provoking and fun, hopefully, you know, and, and a little educational maybe. And if you sign up for it, I will send you for free, uh, WWLD, what would love do wristband? Because if you can answer any question, what would love do? You're going to do things the right way. Oh, that's beautiful. I will definitely make sure that that is there as well as all of your links in the show notes. I've got lots of social, all the links that are here. Plus, I know you've been on a number of different podcasts and have been, right? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I love it. I'm so glad that we were able to have you here. I have one more question for you. And it is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? Oh, well, I'll tell you a lesson that I learned from my husband early in our marriage, which I never thought my husband should teach me anything because he wasn't my father. But I had a moment when I thought, oh, we were newly married and I was going to surprise him, make him so happy when he came home, make his favorite dinner and have candlelight, you know, and, and make his favorite dessert. He loved German chocolate cake and make it from scratch and, and have the apartment all clean and you know, put on something a little slinky, you know, greet him at the door. And you know, I was so excited for him to come home and he came home and uh just walked in like nothing, you know, didn't say a word that anything was different or anything, you know, put down his briefcase or whatever he had. And, and, uh and then we went and ate and, 
He wasn't telling me how great the lasagna was or how nice the table looked or how great I looked. He was saying nothing. So as dinner was going on, I was getting more and more steamed and angry. So by the time I gave him dessert, I practically threw it at him. And he said, what, what is wrong? What's wrong with you? Are you mad at me? And I'm like, yes, I'm mad at you. I did all this. You've said absolutely nothing. Of course I'm mad at you. Why wouldn't I be mad at you? And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not a mind reader. Mm-hmm. And I've done nothing wrong. It's your expectations that have gotten you in trouble. And I'm like, my expectations. Why would you say that? I can't even believe you'd say that. You're blaming me. You're blaming me. I did all this for you. You're blaming me. I was so mad. I went into the bedroom. I slammed the door and I thought, my expectations. What is he saying? I can't believe he just said that. And then I went, my expectations. Oh my gosh, my expectations. He was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. I mean, it was my expectations that got me in trouble. And it was a hard lesson to learn at the moment, but so valuable because if we don't communicate our needs, Nobody knows what they are because nobody reads minds. Nobody does. And so you got to communicate your needs and you have to figure out what expectations are realistic, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and are you doing things for the right way? Because now knowing about love, love would say that I did all those things because I wanted to do all those things without expecting anything in return, even a thank you, nothing, nothing. Right. And isn't that such a difference in expectations, right? Like doing it because I want to and not like, when is it going to come back in return? When is it going to turn around and, you know, pay off whatever? That's not why you do it. And when you do it for that reason, things are tainted and they're not, they're not genuine. They're not as genuine as what they, they could be, but what a beautiful lesson to learn early on. He truly did sound like an incredible person because if you even think about how many years ago that conversation would have been like, that's, that's impressive. Yeah. He was a great guy. Yeah. He was a great guy. Yeah. Well, those open conversations that you had early on and just continued into everything that the work that you get to do now. So that, that, thank you so much for sharing everything that you did. Honestly, I absolutely love this conversation and cannot wait to dive into a little bit more of your work. Well, thank you. This has been great. You're wonderful. I wish you lived next door and we could just go have coffee. And I love your podcast. Everybody should be listening to your podcast and have it at the top of their list. It's it's really great. So valuable. Oh, thank you for that. And yeah, I have a feeling if we lived close to each other, we'd be hanging out. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life. Mm